Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. We are a rewatch pod for Babylon 5 featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I'm your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Hi, I'm Anna. You can find me on Twitter at the underscore me and I and on the Complete Discography podcast that I am in with Justin. I'm Jude. You can find me on Twitter at Jude. Uh, I do some other podcasts. They're all listed on my Twitter profile. Let's go look them up there. We are doing two episodes today. Uh, episodes three and four of season one, Born to the Purple and Infection. Anna, you are taking over plot explanation duties today. Take it away. All right. So at the start of Born to the Purple, we learned that Londo has been skipping out on important meetings because he's got a hot new relationship with a Centauri stripper slash exotic dancer named Adira. With more scenes between the two, it seems that they have a real connection with affection in either direction. Unfortunately, we also find out that Adira is a slave whose master Trachis is using her to access Londo's secret purple files for blackmail material on a wide variety of Centauri families. Londo is oblivious to this and doesn't notice when, after a decadent dinner and gifting Adira a Malari family heirloom, she drugs him and uses a mind probe to gain access to his files. The next morning, Londo finds that Adira is gone, leaving the heirloom brooch behind. He goes to her quarters, only to find Trachis there. Trachis claims that Adira is secretly a Narn agent and confirms that she has taken Londo's files. Londo storms off, but not before Trachis can place a bug on his jacket. After confirming that the files have indeed been copied, Londo leaves to find Adira himself, but is confronted by Sinclair, who is very concerned that Londo is not attending his council duties. Londo asks the commander for help in retrieving the files and finding Adira. The two go undercover to the strip club where Adira works, and using various wiles, learn that she's likely staying with a friend in Brown Sector. Sinclair and Londo are jumped by goons, and Trachis gets to Adira first. In the wake of this setback, the commander devises another cunning plan. Jakar is enlisted to try to buy the files from Trachis, and Talia Winters, the telepath, is also brought in to help. Uh, Sinclair tricks Trachis into thinking about Adira's location so that Talia can pick it up off of a surface scan. Londo then retrieves his files and thanks Jakar profusely for saving both his honor as well as that of the entire Centauri Republic, leaving Jakar very flustered. As Adira is about to leave on a transport out of the station, Londo finds her and tells her that she is a free woman now. He asks her to stay on B5 with him, but she turns him down, saying that the wounds are too fresh. Ultimately, he gives her the brooch again, insisting that she wear it as a free woman and hoping that he will see her again. Meanwhile, we've had a B-plot going on, which is a cat and gremlin chase between Garibaldi and a comms glitch. It looks like someone has been using a high-level channel for unauthorized communications. 
Garibaldi does some digging and Ivanova tries to convince him that it is just a glitch or just perhaps a figment of his own paranoid mind. Ultimately, Garibaldi doesn't give up on figuring out what's going on, but wishes he did, perhaps. He spots another communications glitch, runs anti-encryption software, and finds out that the gremlin is actually Ivanova communicating with Earth. And ultimately, he ends up eavesdropping on Ivanova's final communication with her dying father. Garibaldi approaches her afterwards, saying that he's confirmed that the glitch was just that. Uh, he's sure that it won't happen again and offers to buy Ivanova a drink. Before we dive into this episode, uh, on Atherbeth, which is one of my other podcasts, we have a corrections calls to sack. I'm going to do a brief corrections calls to sack for myself. Uh, not a correction so much as uh, I neglected to call out my, probably one of the things I hate the most about season one, which is Garibaldi's Who Wants to Come Watch My Favorite Thing. Oh, or God. Who Wants to Come See My Favorite Thing. Oh, God. And it's just a Duck Dodge cartoon. Yeah, it's, but it's okay. it's so gross. It's so gross. It's disgusting. Um, He's a disgusting man. Yeah. Uh, uh, we're we're going to get into this later in the season, especially on Check's Notes, episode 12 of season one. But uh, Garibaldi is a pig in both the cop and man sense. And yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's not, not a great dude. Um, and... For that to be like his introduction, uh, in like the first four episodes, I think it's in is it this episode or the last one where uh Talia catches him like thinking something at her? Oh, in, yeah, in, in an elevator, the elevator scene where she's like, sometimes surface thoughts are you know very hard to block out and like fucking like elbows him in the groin. Yeah. Or something. Clearly, clearly, he is like sitting back there thinking dirty thoughts at her. Oh, he straight up looks at her ass. Yeah. Uh, fun fact, uh, at, the t- at the time, those two were married. That. At the time. Mm-hmm. That's so weird. They, and they that- got divorced uh, at some point after that. But at the time, those two were married. That's that's hilarious, but in like a very. Let's talk about some stuff we like in this episode. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I I think this like something that I appreciate is that it is the 23rd century, and for the majority of alien cultures that are depicted on the show, or sorry, 23rd century corrections, that um, Adira is a sex worker, and this is not something that is particularly looked down upon. I, she's never called a whore. She's never like she's never demeaned because of what she is. Like her status as a slave is much more of the problem than the fact that she is a sex worker. Oh yeah, you get a reference to when when he, uh, Malari wants to take her out to dinner. She's like, "Well, aren't you afraid people will see?" And he, it's never it never seems to be. It's not clear what she's afraid people will see there. But it it never well a it never comes up like she's afraid people will see something but whatever it is she's afraid of they don't see it because they're sitting there like practically making out at the table and nobody seems to care and more importantly he honestly Malari is super sweet about it he's like yeah no I'm, yeah. I'm like I really started liking Malari after this episode like Lando is like this was the episode that is like. Oh, 
he is in some respects a awful person but he is also like he is when he like finds stuff that he cares about he is sweet and kind and like cares and there's that weird opening scene to this as well where like he seems actually very proud of her like that he's there in the strip club watching her come up on stage and Sinclair like comes in as like where the fuck have you been Londo and he's like watching my beautiful flower yeah (laughs) and but it's like not creepy somehow it's like it's a little bit creepy creepy. it's a Uh, little creepy but it's it's not as creepy as it could be yeah it could have been worse for sure and i like part of that might be we're gonna find out later that uh centauri marry like have multiple marriages and and largely marry for political connection not for love Mm -hmm. yeah yeah. I also like that Adira has a fair amount of agency as well, like despite her being a slave throughout most of the plot. Like at the end, it's her choice to leave the station and make her own life that's not defined by being Londo's whatever she is. And, you know, it's that's her choice to leave the station and find her path, which I really liked. As much as I loved them together, honestly. Yeah, I think it's good, especially when you compare it to how other shows handle sex work, whether it's The Expanse or Game of Thrones or like fucking anything. Sex workers are are kind of routinely treated the same way. It's very hard to find any media that does that portrays them that casually. Uh, like with that with like no casual stigma yeah which was i thought a nice change and i think i think the thing that adira was concerned about in terms of like people seeing them out is that you know londo is a married man and that you know this would be i think still seen as an affair probably i I didn't get that i got it that it was she was so low status that was what i got from it yeah yeah uh, I didn't get that it was a, mar- a a marriage thing. I got that it was like she was too beneath him. Yeah, that's Cause, also cause his rebuttal. Because his rebuttal to it is they will see me with the most beautiful woman. Yeah. So his thing was like, I, he's not concerned about it being like, you know, oh, don't worry about it. No one will know you're not my wife or something like that. His, right. resp- his response is, who cares what status you are? Like- you're gorgeous, and yeah. I'm a Centauri, and that flatters me. So, it's all it's all good. Yeah, I I think for a lot of the cultural context we're taking from the Centauri, uh, you can look to the title of this episode, "Born in the Purple," which is uh, "Born in the Purple." Originally, was uh, the term for children of the Eastern Roman Empire, uh, the Eastern Roman Emperor. When um, this was done for only children who were born. During the emperor's reign, so if you were born before you ascended the throne, this didn't happen. But children of the emperor, when they were on the throne, were birthed in a special room at the palace that was shrouded entirely in purple cloth. Wow. Yeah, no, it, it was it was a thing because it was this was the child of a Roman emperor being born, and so we get a lot of. I this is. Big stuff for the Roman Empire here with the Centauri. And it's like, Londo 
I'm Londo is a high status dude in the in the Republic. Um, and so like him having a, a, a mistress or a consort is pro- I'm, that's a pretty probably a common thing, especially considering how the Centauri marry. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's it's interesting, especially with like the context of it and like how Londo's most prized possession is his blackmail. Oh, buddy. Yeah. Also, we get a little bit more lore on what telepaths are and aren't allowed to do. Yeah, which I think is valuable. Like, they... Yeah. Yeah, like, only surface-level thoughts. They're not allowed to, like, dig it to people. And and all that is, like, nominally why the Psychor exists is to, you know, set out rules for telepaths to protect the privacy of others. Notice I say nominally. Yeah. Hi. That's what it says on the tab. We're we're gonna get there next episode with the 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 flag so red they were dyed in the blood of millions. Um, yeah, there there's plenty of episodes during which we can discuss psychor history and ethics. We'll get there. I don't have to yeah. dig into it right now. Yeah, yeah. This one this one is the, the Centauri. It, it, it this is a nice easy breezy Centauri episode. I and mean, it's it, it's also interesting to see like. This is the first time I think we see a telepath doing their job, which is like, what the fuck is a telepath? What do you do with a telepath that it's, oh, no, you go to a business deal, sip a coffee and make sure that everybody's being truthful. Yeah. Though the ethics of luring somebody there and purposefully misleading them so that you can just do something else, that feels really sketch. Yeah, you're you're not wrong. I mean, I am sure that if they were actually trying to, like, prosecute, uh, what's his name? Uh, if they were actually trying to prosecute Trackus for this, this case would be uh, uh, tossed out of court from the, uh, gosh, we we get a name for them on Babylon 5 in a little bit. Uh, the magistrate? Ombuds. Ombudsman, yes, ombudsman. Oh, and and we'll delve more into that as well, actually, like, admissibility versus non-admissibility of mm. scans yeah i just love i just love the centauri like and this this ties into like that londo is such like garbage at so many points but i love him so much that the yeah. centauri is such an interesting culture it's so complex and this is one of the first times we really delve yeah. into that on the other hand there's Londo's password for his purple files. Yep. I'm trying to roll. What was it? Wine Women Song. Oh. <laughs> Which I feel like is the one, two, three, four of Centauri Prime. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it did have to be in his voice, though. Yeah. I'm sorry. This is a civilization that has faster than light travel and fucking. <laughs> And like artificial gravity, we can get like ninety percent of the way there with deep fakes. Now there's no way, there's yeah. no way that they can't emulate Londo Malari's voice it's, saying what has to be the most common password in Centauri Prime. I mean, I could do a take right now. Wine, women, and song. There you go. Done. There we purple go. Purple files. I've unlocked. got the purple files. I can hold the Centauri Republic by its balls. Is this the first time also that we see data crystals? I uh, think maybe. May, I think the first time it, they are really shown as what they are. What a 
bananas data storage format. I know. I mean, we had a lot of we had a lot of ideas about what data storage was going to look like in 1993. Speaking as someone who bought a lot of mini disc players, I can't really complain. Like, <laughs> I don't really have a, a leg to stand on here. But how many sci-fi shows would have like precipitated the idea of cloud storage? Right. Yeah. Well, and in fairness, like. I don't know that cloud storage works in the future, in an interstellar future. Oh, yeah. That doesn't seem efficient. But also, okay, I have two beefs with data crystals, and then we can move on. Okay. One, <laughs> where does the label go? Because there's like no this. way. You I put, like this. You put four of them in it, like, eventually they will show, uh, like, data crystals in a little holder, and it's like, which? Which one is which? Which it's, one's which one is my is is my like road tunes and which one is my purple files? I don't know. Well, see, Jude, it's just we have this problem now. It's called the drawer full of unmarked USB keys. Yeah, but you can just write on a USB key. You can slap a fucking sticky note up. like. But nobody they have does. Little labeling surfaces. That's what the label maker's for, right? So <laughs> I just I mean maybe like that's what the you're atomic to do. label maker. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe that's what they. You do. could put a little I'm sticker saying, on the flat bit. That's what. I, but sure. then it wouldn't be all glowy. Right, and that's that's what that's what I'm saying. Uh, my second problem is they also have like why crystals? Why don't they put them in a nice housing? Because they just like drop it into a hole. <laughs> like yeah. why not? <laughs> There's no socket. You have to put it on the top of something. You couldn't put, you couldn't like mount it inside a case so you can plug it into things. It's just the perhaps, perhaps the case that you can put a label on. I bump bump my desk and the data crystal falls out. God damn it. There goes my, there goes my save of doom. Right. I I just, I have beef with the data crystals. Uh, (laughs) Buddy, now that you've brought this up, I have so much open. I'm just. All right, we can let it go now. I'm not. I won't bring it. Well, I'm not going to promise that. I will try not to bring it up again in the future. Oh, but, but it's it's been bothering me too. As as a as a data storage method, it leaves something to be desired. That's all I'm going to say. Also, the question of how much how much can they even store? Right? Like, yeah. I I feel like that's why they exist is that they can store like an absurd amount of data somehow in like the crystal and structure or some sort of sci-fi mumbo jumbo. Yeah. And why didn't she just email herself the files? <laughs> this is one of those things where it's like there's a lot of sci-fi that is like we should keep track of how many plots of these episodes are made redundant by a cell phone. Oh god, it's how hard are mysteries to write now with cell phones? Yeah. Oh, and there's there's also the 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 communications always bothers me too because they have like Ansible real time communication, right? Yeah. But then they also have a t- a tight beam comms laser. I figured that that was for like that's a backup probably. But well, like, either that or for like maybe it's a, a question of like security. Or something yeah. like that. Like that makes sense for security purposes. Yeah. Like it can't be intercepted because it's a tight beam. It's like I guess. Point yeah. to point. How does how does interstellar communication work? Is it just using the jump gates? That's a or good fucking technology? question. They never 
Okay, never cool. says. I, I, I they they just have ansible communication somehow. Look on Lurker's Guide. I'm sure it's on Lurker's Guide. I'm 100 sure that that question is addressed. Yeah, okay. I, I I assume it's like going off the same technology that the jump gates use. But so I I will say one more thing on the technology subject. Imagine your phone is stuck on speaker, <laughs> and you can't you have you you can't not answer it. It automatically answers on the first ring. And also it's on your hand. Well, yes. And also it's glued to the back of your hand. Which of those three things seems dumbest? Because I feel uh, like <laughs> all of them. Yeah. No, but, God. That, that's. And like, also. You take, them off, like, you take them off when you're like at your desk, I guess. Well, no, they don't, then, though. They don't. They just wear them like a fashion accessory. But then oh. to make it even dumber. Apparently, this dubious piece of technology is so advanced, only the military uses it. Because you never see a civilian with one of those communicators. Yeah. So, I, I assume it's like, I assume it's just the, the equivalent of, we have some really smart walkie-talkies well, uh, that tie into like the military communication structure. And the only reason why it's not for our civilians is because... Of all of the multitude of problems that it would come with civilian applications. I guess so. Because, like, everybody else just uses a fucking, like, radio, like a walkie-talkie. Everybody else is just like, hey, you there? And meanwhile, <laughs> the the uh, the Earth Force officers are just like, you know, they're all their private info. It's the military. There's this, like, top secret shit f- blasting out of their hand. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm done. <laughs> That's... The end of <laughs> Jude like has though. beef. <laughs> Jude has beef with the with the technological world building. There's also some sort of ambiguous biometrics, like they can tell when it's like used by somebody who's not the person who is supposed to use it, but that's like also not always the case. Yeah, uh, Garibaldi just like picks up Sheridan's and is just like her um, uh, Sinclair's and is just like beep bloop, like nope, works fine. Yep. Uh, All right. Let's <sighs> let's move on to the next trash episode. I hate yeah, this episode. Move, yeah, let's go to infection. Oh boy. So I'm I'm up again for the summary of this. We open with two new faces. Garibaldi is running interference against a reporter named Mary Ann Kramer, who has recently arrived on the station to interview Sinclair, and Sinclair is studiously avoiding her. Dr. Franklin, meanwhile, is greeted by an old mentor of his, Vance Hendricks, who offers Franklin the adventure of a lifetime, investigating something from a long-dead alien world. Meanwhile, Vance's assistant, Nelson Drake, is murdering a customs officer, who identifies that the pair are smuggling something on board the station. Vance explains to Franklin that he and Drake have brought back artifacts from Ikara 7, from a corporate-sponsored archaeological dig. Despite the item's extreme age, they're in perfect condition, and Vance shows Franklin the real reason why he brought them to B5, and to Franklin specifically. They are some form of organic technology, and he needs the doctor's help in reverse engineering these items. Nelson begins unpacking the artifacts and is zapped by one of them, knocking him across the room and also unconscious. Meanwhile, in CNC, this is noted by the monitors by strange energy readings that Ivanova observes and plans to keep an eye on. After a long day of work by Franklin and Vance, Nelson 
returns to MedLab and uh, clasps one of the alien artifacts to his chest. And it, of course, bonds to him like a gross Iron Man reactor thing, but with a bug. Dr. Franklin wanders back into MedLab and witnesses Nelson, who then says, Protect! and shoots Franklin with an energy pulse. Luckily, the doctor is only knocked unconscious and isn't seriously injured, because we all know that when people are knocked unconscious, they are not seriously injured. Right. What's a concussion? <laughs> seriously. He did what's a concussion. <laughs> when, when he mentions to Garibaldi the next day that Nelson looked like he was wearing some of the organic artifacts, Garibaldi realizes that they were not actually put through proper customs quarantine. Vance insists that if they were smuggled in, he was completely unaware of it. Yeah, sure, buddy. <laughs> and it was all Nelson's fault. Nelson's transformation continues. He fires the weapon again and kills two lurkers, once again saying, Protect! CNC readouts confirm that the energy spikes are getting steadily more powerful and that the time between them is getting shorter. Uh-oh. Franklin has also dug up more information about the Akarans and their ultimate fate. After several invasions, they had the bright idea to develop a bioweapon. Um, this bioweapon has taken over Nelson. It's also programmed to kill anyone who's not a pure Ikaran. And Franklin further explains that the standards for purity were developed not based off of a scientific standard, but instead by bigots and zealots. And ultimately, nobody on Ikara managed to pass the test, and the bioweapons murdered everyone. This information in hand, Sinclair joins the security team to take out the weapon. And after a firefight and trapping the weapon and himself in an airlock that he is ready to depressurize, he confronts it and explains that it and its fellow compatriots themselves destroyed Akara. He tells it to access Nelson's memories, and it does so, seeing the destruction of its world. And ultimately, it pulls the device from Nelson's chest and collapses, somehow still alive. In the aftermath, Franklin confronts Vance, explaining that the device bonded to Nelson because Nelson is a murderer. Vance tries once more to convince Franklin to join him, promising riches um, in the extreme once they sell the bioweapon technology on Earth. Franklin refuses and calls security in to arrest Vance. And then Earth Force appears with orders to confiscate the relics. Good old Earth Force, keeping the consistency at least when it comes to uh, the moral track record yep they they like okay four episodes in earth force is already shit yep and meanwhile kramer has not given up on her attempts to catch her interview uh she blows off garibaldi by reminding him that he's been fired from his last five jobs that tracks uh <laughs> yeah he's got the energy of several co-workers i've had um and she even shows up at cnc and is roundly spanked by ivanova not literally, as much as we would have all enjoyed that. <laughs> it would have been the highlight of this episode because there aren't many. Yeah. When asked whether the expense uh, and hazards of space exploration are worth it, Sinclair responds that yes, they are, because ultimately the sun will go out and with it, it will take not just humans and the Earth themselves, but all of human history and that that memory and civilization and all those people who have gone before us can be kept alive by going out to the stars, um, which was honestly a pretty nice little speech on his part. 
I think this leans into his like death wish thing. He's got a real fatalistic streak. It's yeah. a very Catholic point of view. <laughs> and I actually felt like that was a decent capper on like the Akarin plot as well. Because yeah. like you know, the the Karens ended up being ultimately like they murdered themselves and were forgotten, right? Yeah. I think in that interview, Sinclair is reacting to those events and being like, you know, that this can't happen to us. We we shouldn't allow it to happen to us. Yeah. I think this episode is pretty forgettable. Um, yeah. It was less bad than I remembered, but yeah. still pretty bad. I usually skip it. Yeah, same. This episode reminded me of nothing so much as a middling quality season one TNG episode. Oh, yeah. I feel like we've seen this exact episode on every iteration of Star Trek at some point in an early season. Yeah. I I think there are some things that are, like, cool about this episode. Like, Yeah. It has some unique takes. I'm here for cool body horror. Um, like, the, the actual look of the... the the monster is pretty cool. I mean, I, I do think that your 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 fourth episode of your series being focused on a body horror bioweapon based on standards of racial purity um, is definitely a swing for the fences. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's it's very much a. I maybe this is just twenty twenty speaking here, but this is a very. Uh, I think that's an ambitious sort of thing to drop in your fourth episode. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that Babylon 5, as a rule, swings for the fences. I think that's one of the things you can say that's best about it. This could possibly be bias on my part. I always am a little bit bored of the episodes that are not like arc episodes, that are not pushing the, the overall arc forward. But this one in particular seems to just be there to fill to like fill space. It doesn't really seem like it's doing a lot. And that's I think why I find it so uninteresting. So that's fair. I think it also doesn't help that it's so CGI heavy. Um Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, you know, the CGI is not the strong part on this show. And it's this episode has so much of it. And it looks so bad. And that doesn't help. I think I think I'm a little forgive. I, I was a little forgiving of this one. It's almost like this is a. There are some episodes that I think would have been better as like a radio drama, and this is one of them for that. I think it would have been better if it had a better B plot, because the B plot was just Sinclair avoiding a reporter. Yeah, which is really stayed. But I think like, yeah, we get we get that like in every sort of sci-fi show of like. Uh, a, a, the captain dodging a reporter or their checkup or something. Um, yeah. And, and we get like, oh, hey, Earth Earth is still as corporately exploitative as possible, where if a company found a way to monetize a pandemic, they would. Oh, wait. <laughs> yeah. Well, and the... Uh, too soon. The... It's also our first real bit with Earth Force being absolute garbage. Yeah. Um, or at least some parts of it, uh, etc. And and yeah. yeah, the the kind of like there there's a lot of like interesting philosophical bits thrown together into a plot that's ultimately not very original. 
Yeah. That also doesn't um, even, doesn't look very good on top of that. But there there are there are like some some cool bits. Um like it does definitely delve into Sinclair's like death wish sort of thing that he like he throws himself into that fucking airlock being like like suck me out into space motherfuckers. I would say that every episode of Babylon 5 is at least some worth watching at least once because the actors are all so good. Somebody is doing something some good work on every episode. Yeah. Um I don't think there's a single episode that's completely worthless as TKO will demonstrate uh <laughs> Uh, in a little while um an episode notorious for being garbage and yet you have that b plot with ivanova and which is tremendous yeah and that's where i think if this one had had an actually good b plot i think that it would be like worthwhile but yeah i do recommend you know watching it at least once i just have seen it like six times and that's like four too many i think this is an episode that shows that babylon 5 doesn't maybe mold everything into good stuff but it's working with good clay yeah they were they were trying some things um yeah there are also some fun lines in this one like there's the when when the doctor is like super absorbed um there's that quip of like you know it's like that the earth is Stephen franklin basically and then it's the you know call back to the war of the worlds with the you know there's a there's a martian war machine at the door and they want to have a word with you about the common cold (laughs) there's also ivanova threatening the reporter and being like like you're too young to experience that much pain god that was so good (laughs) it's just such a classic ivanova line yeah it really is just don't but yeah, there, there were there were some some good bits here. Um, also, Justin, take off your headphones. Stand by. Interplanetary expeditions. Am I right? Yeah. Like it's yeah. setting the groundwork. This is another one that the episode itself like isn't strong, but it's laying it's laying some groundwork. And word of God also tells us that the Akaran tech is shadow tech. Yep. So, you know, in it does have its place in the broader plot. It's just buried real deep. Right. All right. Not not that much of a spoilers diversion. And that's one good episode and one one dubious episode. We do have one last uh closing bit for our show, which is um that Babylon 5 is a product of 90 sci-fi has a lot of people who are just doing jobs who come on for one episode and never are heard of again. So this is, hey, I know that face. Your guide to 90 sci-fi bit actors. Uh, last episode, we had uh, W. Morgan Shepard. This episode, I would like to highlight uh, David McCallum, who played Dr. Hendricks. Uh, he is known for a multitude of things, being... An actor who probably took every job that was available because that's how TV actors work. But is most famously known for playing uh, Ilya Kuryakin in the original Man from U.N.C.L.E. Is that really what he's best known for? I mean, okay, at that time, yes. But now he's like known for NCIS. I was going to say, uh, that's where <laughs> most people know him from at this point. I'm sorry, yeah. but I'm uh, like, <laughs> I'm an old soul. <laughs> I don't recognize things from the 21st century. Uh, okay. 
<laughs> That's what people would have known him from. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so that wraps up the two episodes we've got tonight. Next episode of this podcast will be the episodes Parliament of Dreams and Mind War. Solid. That'll be a good discussion. And all you listeners, until next time, we'll be seeing ya. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license. Recording.